Welcome to the Someone Summer podcast. It's Friday, July 14th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 58. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. Find all of my fertility awareness information on my website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at LearnBodyLit to learn more. The relationship between gene mutations, clotting risks, and birth control is of significance if you care about the future of reproductive health. Gene mutations, such as the factor V lead-in mutation, or the MTHFR variation, can impact the body's natural clotting processes, potentially increasing the risk of blood clots. When combined with the use of certain types of birth control, particularly hormonal contraceptives, these mutations can have an additive or even multiplicative effect on clotting risks. Understanding the relationship between gene mutations, clotting risks, and birth control is crucial for healthcare providers and individuals seeking contraception with fully informed consent, as it enables informed decision-making and personalized recommendations to mitigate potential risks. Unfortunately, gynecology does not put very much public health education or personal emphasis on these risks, even when the person has a family history or significant comorbidities. We'll start by talking about why birth control causes clotting risks in the first place. Then we'll move on to talking about the most common genetic mutations related to clotting risk and recommendations for mitigating that risk. Let's start by talking about why birth control causes clotting risks. People taking birth control are at an increased thrombotic risk. This is due to several reasons, including increased levels of fibrinogen, coagulation factors 2, 7, 8, and 10, and decreased levels of antithrombin and protein S. The increased levels of factor 8 and decreased levels of protein S also lead to an acquired protein C resistance, which also adds to clotting risk. So let's briefly go over these and what this means, because I certainly had never heard of any of these before I got into my work with menstrual health education. Birth control increases fibrinogen. Fibrinogen is a protein that plays a crucial role in the blood clotting process. It's produced by the liver and circulates in the bloodstream in an inactive form. When injury or damage occurs to blood vessels, the clotting cascade is initiated, leading to the conversion of fibrinogen into fibrin. Fibrinogen consists of three polypeptide chains, known as alpha, beta, and gamma chains, which are held together by disulfide bonds. It serves as a precursor molecule for fibrin, which forms the structural framework of a blood clot. During the clotting process, an enzyme called thrombin is generated, usually through the action of other coagulation factors. Thrombin acts on fibrinogen cleaving specific peptide bonds and converting it into fibrin. Fibrin molecules then assemble, forming a mesh-like network that traps blood cells, platelets, and other components to create the stable clot. The formation of fibrin is a critical step in hemostasis, or the body's natural process to stop bleeding. Fibrin also provides a scaffold for further activation of the coagulation cascade, reinforcing and stabilizing the blood clot. Abnormalities or deficiencies in fibrinogen can lead to bleeding disorders, such as fibrinogenemia or hypofibrinogenemia, where the body produces insufficient or no fibrinogen. 
Conversely, elevated levels of fibrinogen can be associated with an increased risk of thrombosis or clot formation. And this is what we see with birth control use. Birth control also increases coagulation factors 2, 7, 8, and 10, and these are all proteins involved in the coagulation cascade, which is the complex process of blood clot formation. So now I'll briefly cover what these coagulation factors are. The first is coagulation factor 2, or prothrombin uh, factor 2 is a precursor protein that plays a crucial role in the blood clotting process. It's produced in the liver and it's converted into its active form thrombin, which we just talked about during that coagulation cascade. So remember that thrombin is responsible for converting fibrinogen into fibrin, the protein that forms the meshwork of a blood clot. Coagulation factor seven is a protein synthesized in the liver and is a key initiator of the coagulation cascade as well. When tissue damage occurs, it's factor seven that is activated and helps with the formation of thrombin. Coagulation factor eight is an essential protein involved in the intrinsic pathway of the coagulation cascade produced in the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels, and it acts as a cofactor for factor nine. Together, factors eight and nine activate factor 10, which is an important step in the clot formation. And lastly, coagulation factor 10, or X, is a pivotal protein in the coagulation cascade. It combines with other factors, including factor 5, to generate thrombin. And thrombin then converts fibrinogen into fibrin, and that leads to the formation of the stable blood clot. So as you can see, these coagulation factors work together uh, in a cascade-like manner, with each factor activating the next factor in a series of reactions and ultimately what results is the formation of a clot to prevent excessive bleeding. So any deficiencies or abnormalities in these coagulation factors can disrupt the clotting process and uh, potentially lead to bleeding disorders or an increased risk of clotting disorders such as thrombosis. Birth control also decreases antithrombin, a natural anticoagulant protein produced in the liver. It plays a crucial role in regulating blood clotting and preventing excessive clot formation. Antithrombin works by inhibiting several clotting factors, particularly thrombin and factor 10A. And thrombin and factor 10A are key enzymes in the coagulation cascade, and they promote the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin and activate other clotting factors. And so antithrombin binds to these enzymes and it effectively blocks their activity and prevents the formation of excessive blood clots. So deficiencies or abnormalities in antithrombin can increase the risk of excessive blood clotting, leading to conditions such as deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, or venous thromboembolism. Next, protein S it's decreased by birth control use. And what protein S is, is a natural anticoagulant protein that's produced in the liver and the endothelial cells, which line the inner surface of the blood vessels. And it plays a crucial role in regulating blood clotting and preventing excessive clot formation. So protein S works in conjunction with the other proteins to inhibit the clotting process and maintain a delicate balance between clot formation and clot dissolution. So that's the typical homeostasis of the body. And one of the primary functions of this protein S is as its role as a cofactor for activated protein C, or APC. 
and APC is another anticoagulant protein. Current screening recommendations or not? So, you know, if the risk of serious complications for birth control use is so individualized, you would think that a simple screening test could be conducted to rule out those who are, unbeknownst to them, at a much higher risk than their peers. But at this time, the American College of Medical Genetics consensus statement on Factor V lead-in mutation testing is the following. Factor V lead-in testing is recommended in women with venous thromboembolism during pregnancy or oral contraceptive use. In contrast to general screening before administration of oral contraceptives, targeting testing of women with a personal or family history of venous thrombosis is advisable. Routine screening for factor V lead-in in asymptomatic women contemplating or using oral contraceptives is not recommended, except for those with a personal history of thromboembolism or other medical risk factors. Those women with a family history of thromboembolism, APC resistance, or documented factor V lead-in mutation should be counseled about their risks and options and considered for testing depending on the overall clinical situation. Women with a history of recurrent late trimester fetal loss should also be considered for testing. Whether or not the woman smokes would not alter these recommendations. Screening of asymptomatic individuals with other recognized environmental risk factors such as surgery, trauma, paralysis, and malignancy is not necessary or recommended since all such individuals should receive appropriate medical prophylaxis for thrombosis regardless of carrier status. Nor does the ACOG, or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, recommend regular MTHFR mutation testing as a screening precaution. So as it currently stands, to them, it only matters if you've already had the blood clot. There is no emphasis on reducing more cases of easily preventable harm. Perhaps related to this disconnect is that because one goes to an emergency service during a blood clot event, Many gynecologists perhaps are unaware of how many of their patients are affected by these clots or that there may be a connection with the birth control use, and they may even have their own biases concerning the risks. So in other words, they're more likely to never bring up this information with you, and they're more likely to downplay the facts if you're the one who does bring it up. Um, and unfortunately, as is often the case, if you've already been injured by a birth control product in this way, they may even gaslight you afterwards if they are notified. So this is all part of navigating the gynecology system within the medical industrial complex, and it helps us make a case for why we need something drastically different in terms of care. So now that we understand how birth control interacts with blood clotting, let's take a look at these common gene variations. What is MTHFR? MTHFR, or methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, is an enzyme that performs many processes in methylation, folate metabolism, and the processing of amino acids. MTHFR enzyme converts one type of folate, 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate, to a different form of folate that is the primary kind that's found in your blood, and this is 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate. Uh, and so it performs this conversion process. And one of the many reasons why this is so important is because the conversion of folate through the MTHFR enzyme 
is necessary for converting the amino acid homocysteine to another amino acid, methionine. And methionine helps make proteins and other essential compounds. So we really need MTHFR. And so you're probably wondering if MTHFR is an enzyme, then what is the MTHFR gene that we're talking about here? And the MTHFR gene is just referring to the gene that determines how well that that enzyme functions for you. So each person is going to get two copies of the MTHFR gene. They're going to receive one copy from each parent. And if you have the MTHFR variant, then you have a difference in either one or both copies of that MTHFR gene. And so the most common variants are C677T and A1298C, and they don't represent disease. According to the Thousand Genomes Project, approximately 25% of the global population are carriers of this C677T gene variant. Um, so when someone says, I have MTHFR, really what they are meaning to say there is that they have the variation that reduces the ability for the body to process folate and particularly folic acid, the synthetic form of folate. So technically we all have MTHFR, but roughly 25 to 60% of people worldwide are dealing with an MTHFR variation, which makes it very difficult for their body to use synthetic folic acid. And if you have the variation, you've already been tested for it, you should avoid folic acid, which is um, going to be found in prenatals, multivitamins, and fortified foods. And you can, however, still supplement with metabolically active versions of folate, such as methylfolate, sometimes that's referred to as 5-MTHF. Um, other times it's listed as L-methylfolate or L5-methyltetrahydrofolate. Um, or it's sometimes labeled folinic acid. And the highest food sources of folate are liver, egg yolks, fish roe, and leafy greens like wakame, spinach, asparagus, and sprouted legumes. And these are all available in the bioactive forms, not synthetic forms like folic acid. So how does one know if they have the MTHFR variation? You'll actually need a genetic test, either from your doctor or an at-home saliva test. And if these aren't an option for you at this time, you can simply prioritize real food folate and getting the metabolically active forms. And so what's the main issue with MTHFR variation? These mutations mean that you're at a higher risk of having a blood clot, a heart attack, and having coronary artery disease. And this can also correlate with higher than normal homocysteine levels. But this isn't the only factor. In terms of pregnancy, MTHFR variations have also been associated with an increased risk of certain pregnancy complications, including neural tube defects, because adequate folate levels are essential during pregnancy to prevent neural tube defects in the developing fetus. And so MTHFR variations can impact your folate metabolism and that potentially reduces the availability of active folate forms that are needed for the proper fetal neural tube development. There's also recurrent pregnancy loss. Some studies have suggested a possible association between MTHFR variations and an increased risk of recurrent pregnancy loss, although the evidence is not yet conclusive. 
and the impaired folate metabolism due to MTHFR variations may contribute to the development of blood clots in the placental vessels, also leading to pregnancy loss. And the last complication mentioned is preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a pregnancy complication characterized by high blood pressure and organ damage, and MTHFR variations are being investigated as a potential risk factor for preeclampsia, although more research is needed to establish a clear association. So it's important to note that the impact of MTHFR variations can vary among individuals, and not all people with this genetic variation are going to experience pregnancy complications or otherwise. And additionally, lifestyle factors and other genetic and environmental factors can obviously also influence the risk and severity of these associated conditions. Now let's take a look at the scenario when we combine the MTHFR variation with contraceptives, which increase your risk of cardiovascular events and stroke by three to six times, depending on the type of contraceptive used. The fact of the matter is that having the MTHFR variation makes using birth control more risky, and yet we don't screen people for it before prescribing it. When people with MTHFR variations use hormonal contraceptives, particularly combined oral contraceptives containing both estrogen and progestins, the risk of blood clot formation may be further heightened. Estrogen present in these contraceptives can increase the production of certain clotting factors and decrease the levels of natural anticoagulants in the blood, promoting a procoagulant state. When combined with the potential effects of MTHFR variation, which may already predispose individuals to elevated homocysteine levels and impaired folate metabolism, the overall clotting risk can be further exacerbated. It is important to note that the absolute risk of developing blood clots while using hormonal contraceptives remains low for most, including those with the MTHFR variation. However, the presence of MTHFR variations may increase the relative risk compared to women without these genetic variations. The decision to use hormonal contraceptives should be made in consultation with a healthcare professional who can assess the individual's medical history in an individualized way and provide necessary screenings to evaluate the potential risks and benefits and determine the most appropriate contraceptive method based on the individual's overall health and clotting risk profile. And so people with MTHFR variations who are considering hormonal contraceptives may be advised to undergo specific testing, such as measuring homocysteine levels or assessing other clotting parameters to further evaluate their clotting risk and continue to monitor them through their use of the medication. In some cases, healthcare providers may recommend alternative contraceptive options or prescribe lower dose hormonal contraceptives to mitigate potential clotting risks. And it's crucial for people who use hormonal contraceptives, especially those with the MTHFR variation, to be aware of the signs and symptoms of blood clots, such as leg pain, swelling, shortness of breath or chest pain, and to seek medical attention if any concerning symptoms arise. Regular follow-up appointments with a healthcare professional are also important to monitor and manage the individual's health while using the hormonal contraceptives. So besides MTHFR, what other gene mutations should be screened before using birth control? Let's talk about factor V lead-in. Factor V lead-in is an inherited blood clotting disorder due to a mutation of the blood's factor V protein. 
Factor V bleed-in affects the coagulation cascade, which is the series of chemical reactions that occur in the blood to form a clot. Individuals with this mutation have an altered form of factor V, a protein that's involved in clotting, making it more resistant to inactivation by the body's natural anticoagulant proteins. Factor V lead-in increases the chance of blood clots developing by roughly 24 times, which can be life-threatening. There is an increased risk of developing blood clots during pregnancy or when taking estrogen or birth control containing estrogen. Now, most people never develop symptoms, but unfortunately, the first indication of this disorder may be the development of a blood clot or thrombosis, which is a life-altering event and results in having to use blood thinners daily if the person even survives. So factor V lead-in mutation is the most frequent genetic thrombotic risk factor in white people, particularly in Europe. It consists of a single point mutation in the factor V gene, guanine to adenine in position 1691, leading to a resistance to activated protein C and thus to an increased thrombotic risk. The simultaneous presence of a combined oral contraceptive and factor V lead-in mutation has a multiplicative rather than just an additive prothrombotic effect in clinical studies, which means that it's potentially very dangerous. And so one study states, quote, the various combined oral contraceptives confer a different thrombotic risk depending on their progestin content. Combined oral contraceptives, or COCs, and factor V lead-in mutation are two independent risk factors for blood clot formation or thrombosis. When these two factors are present together in an individual, they can have a multiplicative effect on the overall risk of thrombosis. When a person with factor V lead-in mutation takes combined oral contraceptives containing estrogen and progestins, their risk of clot formation can increase significantly. And there's a few reasons why we know that this occurs. The first is estrogen's effect on clotting factors. Estrogen present in combined oral contraceptives can increase the production of certain clotting factors in the liver, as we explained earlier. And this effect is particularly relevant when combined with the presence of factor V lead-in mutation. The mutation causes factor V to be resistant to inactivation, and that increased clotting factors from estrogen can further enhance that risk of clot formation. The next reason is the interaction with progestins. Progestins, the other hormone that's present in a combined oral contraceptive, can also influence blood clotting. Although its effects on clotting factors are generally less pronounced in estrogen, the combination of estrogen and progestins can contribute to an increased risk of clots, especially when factor V lead-in mutation is present. And lastly, the impact on natural anticoagulant proteins. So factor V lead-in mutation affects the function of protein C, which is that natural anticoagulant protein and it inhibits the clotting process by deactivating clotting factors. However, in individuals with factor V leading mutation, their protein C is less effective in preventing clot formation to begin with. So when the COCs are added onto this equation, the estrogen can further decrease the levels of protein C, leading to a diminished capacity to regulate the body's clot formation. And the interaction between oral contraceptives and factor V bleeding mutation creates this synergistic effect where the combination of these two factors is significantly increasing the risk of blood clot formation compared to each factor by itself. And so it's important to note that 
not all individuals with factor V leading mutation are going to develop blood clots while taking combined oral contraceptives, but their risk is significantly higher compared to those without the mutation. So if an individual has factor V leading mutation, ethical healthcare providers may advise against using COCs as a contraceptive method and alternative forms of contraceptives like progestin-only methods or non-hormonal options, those might be recommended to minimize the risk of thrombosis. But it is essential to consult with a healthcare professional who can assess individual risk factors and you know, provide personalized recommendations. I also wanted to make a short note here, even though this isn't a clotting factor risk, there is um, one more genetic risk that is related to birth control, which is called the BRCA, or there's two, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, which both increase a person's susceptibility of developing breast cancer, especially combined with hormonal contraceptive use. So those with BRCA1 um, gene mutation, there's a modest increase in the risk of breast cancer from using contraceptives. Um, if they use birth control for more than five years, they have a 33% increased risk of breast cancer as compared to those with the mutation who do not use birth control. Um, we also have historic data from those who were using contraceptives before 1975 when estrogen levels in the pills were much higher. And they showed that they had around a 42% increased risk of breast cancer. So we have much lower doses today, um, which definitely contributes to a lower risk um, but the risk is still present. So those with BRCA gene mutations should definitely weigh the risks and benefits of a long-term use of contraceptives. And there are some other clotting cascade factors as well. In addition to MTHFR, factor V leading, and BRCA genes, there are also tests for protein C, protein S. Um, those can be helpful if you suspect that you do have issues with blood clotting. Um, because these proteins help regulate clotting. And you could also test for antiphospholipid antibodies, which are abnormal antibodies which target proteins that are attached to fat molecules, um, making blood more likely to clot. And homocysteine levels, because high homocysteine causes irritation of the blood vessels and is a factor for blood clots. Um, so all of these tests can be helpful because they give a more full picture of the individual's clotting risk. And now I'd like to move on to a little bit about understanding what the symptoms of a blood clot are and what changes when you have a blood clot. So please seek medical attention if you notice aching, cramping, a type of leg pain that does not go away, a sudden shortness of breath, a sudden blindness, severe pain or pressure in your chest area, sudden and severe headaches, um, any kind of weakness in your arms and legs, or trouble speaking, dizziness, or yellowing of your skin or eyeballs, or honestly anything that feels very personally off to you, um, you should definitely seek immediate medical attention. And if the patient is fortunate enough to catch a blood clot early on um, and catch the blood clot in the leg, for instance, before it moves to the lungs, they're likely to be okay. But the problem is that medical misogyny and medical racism and just plain dismissal of pain symptoms and anti-disability worldview in particular is just a huge problem in the medical system. And so if you feel these symptoms, um, 
you know, go to an ER right away, have your body assessed, and in particular, have an ultrasound um, and be adamant. Uh, so, you know, if they are dismissing you, you have to keep pushing through if you know that something is definitely wrong um, and refuse to leave or, um, you know, do what is necessary within, um, you know, the bounds that is possible for you to um, advocate for yourself um, because these um, things really depend on time and they, uh, if dismissed, can definitely become more life-threatening um, than they would have been if they were just treated from the beginning. In order to assess clotting risk, healthcare providers can use various tests and evaluations. And these tests are what's going to help identify underlying conditions or abnormalities that can contribute to excessive blood clotting or increased risk of clot formation. So the first test is complete blood count, a CBC. It measures different components of the blood, including the blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets. And abnormalities in these components can indicate potential clotting risks. The second test is prothrombin time, PT, an international normalized ratio or INR. And PT and INR tests evaluate the functioning of the extrinsic pathway of clotting cascades. They primarily assess the clotting factors that are involved in the pathway, including prothrombin and the factors like factor seven, 10, and five. And the results are used to monitor the effectiveness of anticoagulant medications. And another test is activated partial thromboplastin time, or APTT, and the APTT test evaluates the functioning of the intrinsic pathway of the clotting cascade, measuring the time it takes for blood to clot and to assess the clotting factors involved, like factor 8, 9, 11, and 12. And the APTT test is often used to monitor the effectiveness of the heparin therapies. There's also the D-dimer test, which is a protein fragment that's released when a blood clot dissolves. So elevated levels of D-dimer in the blood may indicate the presence of a clot. And D-dimer testing is often used as a screening tool to rule out the presence of blood clots, such as deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. There's also platelet function tests, which evaluate how well platelets function and their ability to form clots. And there's genetic testing, um, which we have spent most of our time here today talking about to help identify inherited clotting disorders like factor V bleed-in, um, prothrombin gene mutation, or MTHFR. And these all increase the risk of blood clot formation. And the tests are built to analyze those specific genes um, associated with the clotting abnormalities. There's also antiphospholipid antibodies. Um, testing, which is when you test for these antiphospholipid antibodies, which are antibodies that increase the risk of blood clotting. Um, the tests could be um, anticardiolipin antibody, ACA, or lupus anticoagulant, LA, um, which would detect the presence of these antibodies. And there's also von Willebrand disease tests. So this accounts for about 20% of all cases of heavy menstrual bleeding, which is pretty interesting. Um, coagulation disorders can be screened through blood testing where you'll be referred to a hematologist or a blood specialist from there. And so there's significant risk differences um, between the serious adverse health events depending on which type of contraceptive is used. So I did also want to go over that briefly with you so that you can get a sense of which contraceptives are the most risky, which are the safest in terms of clotting risk specifically. 
So the highest risk contraceptives include injectables like Depo-Provera, rings like NuvaRing, implants like Nexplanon, progestin pills, and first, third, and fourth generation combined oral contraceptives, as well as patches. I include all of these in my high-risk category because they have the most serious adverse health events um, involved with them, including double the baseline risk or six times increased risk compared to three times increased risk of blood clots, stroke, and heart attack. So they also have long-term health effects on bone health and have some of the longest return to healthy menstrual cycling after use. And so these are also the first, third, and fourth generation pills containing uh, Northendral, Northindrone, Linestrinol, Ethanodiol Diacetate, Margestimate, Desogestrol, Gestodine, Cyproturone Acetate, Drospirinone, Nomagestrol Acetate, or Dianagest. Now to move on to the medium category. These would be hormonal IUDs like the Mirena, second generation pills that contain levonorgestrel or Northisterone, tubal ligation, or copper IUDs like the Paragard. I included these all in the medium category because the hormonal methods like the second generation pills and the hormonal IUDs contain levonorgestrel or Northisterone which has only a three-time increased risk compared to the six-time increased risk in the high category for the risk of blood clots, stroke, and heart attack. Um, so it halves your risk if you choose levonorgestrel or northinsterone. And copper IUDs, although they don't contain hormones directly, they do contribute to a host of hormonal issues as well as creating low-grade inflammation in the uterus. Um, there's also a very small perforation risk. And uh, lastly, tubal ligation requires surgery. So um, these are in the medium risk category. Um, and we're just talking about safety, not effectiveness. Um, and the safest contraceptive options include uh, FAM methods. That's what I teach, withdrawal, spermicides, sponges, vasectomies, uh, female or male condoms, abstinence, and diaphragms. And these are the lowest risk options because they don't cause any hormonal dysregulation or pose serious health risks to the user. Um, the side effects in this category would be uh, simply mild vaginal irritation. Now, you may have just heard me mention that we were just discussing the risks uh, related to adverse health events and contraceptives and not the effectiveness. And the reason why I mentioned that is because birth control is often compared to pregnancy when we talk about risks. Um, when the risks are brought up, um, the risk of pregnancy is often mentioned. And so in this part of the episode, I'd like to just go over why birth control should not be compared to pregnancy. And instead, why birth control should be compared instead to not using birth control. And so let's start with the increased relative risk. While both pregnancy and certain forms of birth control can carry a risk of blood clot formation, Hormonal contraceptives, particularly combined oral contraceptives, have been associated with a higher relative risk compared to low-risk pregnancies. Studies have shown that the use of hormonal contraceptives can increase the risk of blood clots by several fold compared to non-users or people who are not pregnant. The second thing is the extended duration of exposure. 
Pregnancy is a temporary condition. It lasts for approximately nine months. During this time, the clotting risk is elevated due to hormonal and physiological changes, and the highest risk occurs between weeks 11 and 20. However, the use of hormonal contraceptives can extend over many years or even decades, prolonging the duration of exposure to potential clotting risks. The cumulative effect of prolonged exposure to hormonal contraceptives can contribute to an increased overall risk of blood clot formation. The next area to look at is variability in individual susceptibility. While individual factors can influence clotting risk, it's important to acknowledge that not all pregnancies carry the same levels of clotting risk. Some individuals may have pre-existing conditions or genetic predispositions that initially elevate their risk, while others may have a lower inherent risk. On the other hand, the clotting risk associated with hormonal contraceptives remains relatively consistent across all individuals who use it, regardless of their individual susceptibility, and it seems to be correlated with a multiplicative effect when it is combined with other risk factors. There are serious consequences. Although the absolute risk of blood clots associated with hormonal contraceptives may be relatively low, the consequences can be severe when they do happen. And blood clots can lead to serious complications, like deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, which can be life-threatening or fatal. And while pregnancy carries its own set of risks, including the possibility of blood clots, the overall risk and severity of complications associated with hormonal contraceptives simply cannot be ignored because pregnancy also carries that risk. And lastly, individual health considerations. The decision to use birth control or proceed with a pregnancy should be based on an individual's overall health, medical history, and risk factors. For individuals with pre-existing conditions or a heightened risk of clotting disorders, the use of hormonal contraceptives may pose a greater danger compared to the clotting risks associated with pregnancy. So consulting with a healthcare professional is crucial to assess your individual circumstances to make the best informed decisions. So in conclusion here, while pregnancy carries its own inherent risks, the use of hormonal contraceptives, particularly combined oral contraceptives, can pose a higher relative risk of blood clot formation over the lifespan. Considering the extended duration of exposure, increased relative risk, and potential for serious consequences, it is essential for individuals to weigh the clotting risks associated with birth control against the benefits and their individual health considerations. Ultimately, an intervention should be compared to a non-intervention, not another intervention as has been done here so frequently when discussing birth control risks and pregnancy risks. Gynecologists also cannot assume to know the lives and choices of their patients, or if their patients ever even want to become pregnant in the future. By adding the variable of pregnancy as the metric for comparison, it makes the assumption that the person either will definitely become pregnant or that they will not be capable of the responsibility for their fertility without the use of these recommended hormonal contraceptives. And conversely, if pregnancy is desired by that patient, notice that it's immediately framed for them as more dangerous and therefore impedes on their free thoughts, free decision-making, and creates unnecessary fear, which can lead to unnecessary and harmful interventions down the line in their pregnancies. An alternative could be, perhaps, screening for these conditions as a standard, or at the very least, if requested by the patient, 
and to assess the risk of the birth control intervention from the perspective of use versus non-use and not use versus pregnancy. So to sum it up, there are genetic risk factors worth considering before using contraceptives or for how long you choose to use them. Birth control causes a pro-inflammatory, pro-clotting state in the body, and gene mutations also increase the risks of clotting and can result in life-threatening complications such as deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, stroke, and heart attack. The combination of these factors is reason enough to encourage doctors to screen for these factors before putting an otherwise healthy individual on medication. So I would love to know, has your doctor ever discussed these risk factors with you regarding birth control? I would also love to hear more about your experiences because I know that when I was prescribed birth control, this was not disclosed to me in any way. Um, And that definitely would have been something I would have appreciated knowing, considering there are people in my family who do have a history of blood clots and heart attacks. And yes, I may have been young and healthy when I embarked on using birth control, but so were many of the people who ended up with DVT or pulmonary embolisms or strokes. And so we simply cannot predict how the body might react. And when these events happen, they can happen quite suddenly. So even with all the awareness around the early warning signs, um, the better, more ethical politic to me would be to make sure that we're screening people for these genetic risk factors because we know about them. Um, And talking to them about their lifestyle factors as well, and generally having more regard for the menstrual cycle when we discuss how to utilize contraceptives and what the risks of using them might be. All of this would be, I think, fruitful um, discussion to be had for the future of contraceptive use. And so I hope that this episode was able to teach you something useful about genetic variation, about how these genetic variations affect clotting risks, and also that you learned something about the mechanics of how birth control is actually affecting these things. You know, all of it feels very mystified to me sometimes. Like there's this like shroud of secrecy to talk about these things openly. And then the only people you can really find information from are like the victims if they survive and their families if they didn't. And I really think that so much could be done to improve contraceptive ethics um, and informed consent among them, but also doing much more on the side of prevention where we're actually acknowledging like we know how to make birth control use safer um, because people are always going to need to utilize it in whatever form and at different points in their lives. And so it's really important as menstrual health educators, even if we don't necessarily work with people on birth control all the time, um, that we share with people the facts about how birth control is interacting with the cardiovascular system and the immune system and, and how that contributes to our overall health and making sure that we're informed and aware. So thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate your listen on this episode. If you liked it, please share it with someone. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. And if you can take a moment to subscribe, to rate or review me on any of those platforms, I'd really appreciate that because doing so helps more people find the show. And so this episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag fam taught me. 
and you can look that up on Twitter or on Instagram and you will find my relevant posts. You can also book a session with me by heading over to www.learnbodyliteracy.com and by following me on Instagram at learnbodylit to learn more. And don't forget to check out my new course, Breaking Up With Birth Control and the Body Literacy Audiobook. Um, your support is always appreciated and you can find all of these on the programs page on my site. And this concludes episode 58 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night.